Welcome back for another episode of The Big O Podcast. I am your host, Julian Ortiz, and on today's show, I am joined by a very special guest, former host of Off The Record on TSN, one of the best interviewers of all time, and a man who's freshly tatted up, Michael Landsberg. Michael, how are you doing today? Well, so freshly tatted. Uh, by the <laughs> way, thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, I'm not sure I would agree with everything you said, but, uh, but you know, it's nice. But also, there's a little ass-kissing, I guess, because you accused me of being, you know, like a really good interviewer. And a really good interviewer knows that there's different ways to get inside people's heads, right? Sure. Sometimes you have to be complimentary so they buy in. And sometimes you have to dole it out very judiciously. And and um, I'm not going to tell you which one I am, but I'm going to show you my tattoo, which says 112408YULMH5210400. My first ever tattoo. I still have the uh, artificial skin on for another yep. day. And uh, yeah, my whole life has changed. I'm uh, just a badass. I'm walking around. People give me respect I never got before. And, uh, you know, I just uh, I feel like I don't even have to talk in sentences, just, you know, sort of grunting noises. <laughs> Now we're going to get to the meaning of the tattoo, what inspired you to get it in just a little bit. First off, I want to congratulate you over 3000 episodes of OTR getting right into it. How did off the record become a thing and how did you know it was time to move on? Uh, well, if you go back to, uh, to the start, uh, it was, uh, it so I had done Sports Desk or Sports Center for, I guess, five years, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But I always felt like I couldn't 100% be me, that so much of the job was not, not your personality. A lot of the job was to get the news out, right? Yep. Uh, and then um, my boss at the time, uh, who uh, now runs, I mean, he's phenomenally successful. He now runs the European golf tour. His name is Keith Pelly. And he's, you know, like when, when there's a change in the program director or the vice president of programming, some people win and some people lose. I was one of the winners because he liked me, right? We kind of grew up in TV together. And he said, you know, do you want to host a talk show? And I said, you know, absolutely. Uh, so he said, okay, I got this great idea. We're going to call it off the record. Well, of his ideas, that was the only one that actually stuck was the name of the show. Uh, and TSM wasn't giving up. They weren't really taking a chance because uh, the show was on at six o'clock and they'd never had a show on at six o'clock. Right. Typically, they would just buy something and put it in there. So they had nothing to lose. And we were, we were successful right away, even though we weren't very good. Uh, we were successful, I think, mostly because TSN was so powerful in the marketplace. Everybody watched TSN. People yep. would come home from work and say, OK, I got to put on TSN. So uh, it didn't, I don't think it really mattered how good we were or how not good we were. We were getting an audience, which uh, I know not for a fact, but I believe if we had done the same show and it was on Sportsnet or it was on The Score uh, or any other service, I, I don't think there were any other sports services, we probably would have failed. But TSN was so powerful that it gave us, you know, all kinds of time because we had an audience ready made. Plus, we had wrestlers and wrestlers yeah. really put us on the map. And we got those wrestlers because for two reasons. Number one, because TSN broadcast raw at the time. So there was a partnership. Uh, number two, because Bret Hart was a guest on our first week. Uh, and Vince liked the idea after I interviewed him of 
having his guys be out of character. And then Vince did the screw job on Bret Hart in the Survivor Series in Montreal. And Bret came on our show to talk about it multiple times. And it kind of just put us on the map because the wrestling audience is about the only portable audience that exists. Like hockey fans, you know, you could say we have uh, Bobby Orr and Bobby Hull and um, the ghost of Jean Beliveau and uh, and Jesus Christ on the show talking hockey. And, you know, like you'd get a good show out of it and you'd get, you know, decent ratings. But you put a wrestler on, Stone Cold Steve Austin, on a Monday holiday when it was, I think, the sixth time we had repeated the show, it drew almost a half million people. That is wow. ridiculous wow. for a talk show at six o'clock on a cable network. So that's how it got going. Yeah, I mean, I've I can't remember when I started watching OTR, but I remember it became a regular staple in my sports watching because even towards the latter part of OTR, you had some of the ESPN shows run for the hour time slot right before it. I think it was like Sports Nation and then um, part of the interruption and then goes right into OTR. And it's really interesting because it's such a different style of show, as you mentioned. It was different than really anything else that you would have seen back then. I mean, now today with TikTok and, and Instagram and YouTube and the way that you can sort of bet on yourself with a podcast just like the one I'm doing right now and putting it out, there are more opportunities to put out content. Back then, you're right, TSN was huge. Sportsnet wasn't what Sportsnet is now. The score was something much, much smaller as well, especially towards like the end of OTR. Yes, the score became very popular in a like teenage and young adult demographic, but TSN was, and I still argue, is probably the staple of sports entertainment. And as you talked about, when you have guys like Jim Duthie uh, and you had guys, I can't remember his partner's name, right? Dan O'Toole, and then you had things like Raw or you had things like the Champions League, major sporting events that had eyes from that three to five, you know, four to six time slot, you're seamlessly getting those eyes on OTR. And all of a sudden, as you said, uh, Brett the Hitman Hart, CM Punk, Chael Sonnen, Gene Simmons. I mean, it's a who's who of icons in whatever they're doing. And now you're getting a chance to ask not just questions that fans want to hear, not just questions that you want to put out there, but whether you were trying to or not, you get some of the greatest content, which I will refer to later on as we go. What was it like getting to see a different side of these athletes and actors and sort of put them on the hot seat? The beauty of, of Off the Record was um, when we started, after about six months, uh, we, uh, we got a, a new producer who, uh, who, his name is Bob Makowitz. And, and Bob, uh, Bob was the smartest guy that I've ever met. And he knew that the show had to take on my persona, not because my persona was so great, but because I had to be comfortable doing it. And one of the, the keys to television, any kind of broadcasting, is authenticity. If, if you're forced to act like something that's not natural to you, it will never be as good as the natural. So the show, you know, took on on my my personality and uh, especially on camera. I've always been empowered um, not to care what people thought of me, like literally right. uh, couldn't care less. And therefore, I was able to ask and push guests and ask questions that even if I thought, well, you know what, this is going to piss them off. 
it, it didn't matter to me. And that was always, you know, people say all, still all the time, like, who's your favorite guest? And I'll say, you know, I don't have one, but I have a model for that person. And that person would be man or woman, would be um, thick skinned and would be highly intelligent. You see, if someone's smarter than me, then I can challenge them to the best of my ability. I can try to, you know, if they say something, I can try to, you know, box them into a corner and say, okay, well, you know, now you got to tell us. But if someone's uh, not up to that, I just look like a bully. And Bob right. Makowitz used to say in my ear all the time, don't be a bully, don't be a bully. So I'd love to guess like Vince McMahon, right? I mean, yep. like who, who's going to say, oh, Michael, you know, you pushed Vince McMahon too hard. No, it couldn't happen. No one's going to say, oh, you know what? You are hard on Vince. That's what people wanted. But then, you know, you get you get someone who's not nearly as capable uh, and you just seem like a bully. So the show was, you know, kind of took on my personality. And, you know, I loved uh, being able to be me. Now, I mean, you've referenced the Vince McMahon interview, you know, a couple times now, and it's a staple for me. I mean, if someone asked me, what's your favorite OTR interview or show? I mean, Vince is up there. CM Punk is up there. Yeah. Um, Ask know, me about Br CM Punk. Hold on one sec. Yeah. Um, so uh, CM Punk was on the show and it was, I think, two weeks before uh, Christmas when we went on break. Uh, and as as you know, um, most people, you know, it's not like the whole country knows CM Punk interview, but he yeah. hated me like right from the get go because I was I was like ready. I was ready for him. You know, I've done interviews where afterwards I thought eh, that was not my best or that wasn't very fair or man, I was a dick. But with CM Punk, it was my first question to him was you uh, you have been a professional wrestler and you're great at it. And people love you as a professional wrestler. But now you want to fight UFC where it's it's real. It's not a show. It's real. Have you ever taken a real punch to the face? And he went, What? And I said, well, you know, like, like wrestling, I'm, I'm not, you know, believe me, I'm the last guy who's going to demean wrestling, but yeah. you know, it's, it's a slap to the chest with, you know, with, with the foot going up and down and making right. the noise. Right. And that's, that's not an insult to wrestling, but they're not punching you, but you know, in UFC, they're trying to knock you out. And he like, from that point on, he just hated me. So two weeks later, we, my family and I were in Las Vegas and Dana White gave us second row seats to uh, UFC. Um, trying to remember which one it was, not that it really matters. So we're sitting there, uh, we go to sit down and it's uh, my wife, my wife, my daughter, my son, and my son's girlfriend at the time. And we sit down, I go, oh my God, look who's down there, like five seats down at CM Punk. <laughs> So I, so this is for me, this is kind of like judgment day. Okay. Right. Michael, you know, it's one thing to, you know, act like you're not afraid of someone when you're protected sure. um, by the fact that like when I interviewed him, I think he was in New York. So it was by satellite. Right. So I thought, okay, well, you know, you know, be, be true to your word, you know, go up to him and say hi and see, see what happens. Right. So I, I told my daughter, Case, come with me. He's not going to punch me if you're there. And I told my son, <laughs> record this from where you're sitting. So we went over there and I said, uh, hey, CM. And I, I said, I don't even know if you know who I am, right? Because I saw him in the interview, but he couldn't see me. You oh, know, okay. technically in television, you don't always have a return feed. So right. he goes, this is him. I know who you are. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> uh, and I say hi to his wife. And his wife uh, is super friendly, right? Until I see him lean over and kind of whisper in her ear. And then she she gives me the scowl too. 
So I said, look, you know, I just want to come over and say hi. And, you know, I, I, I know you're pissed off at me, obviously. But, you know, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Uh, I stand by what I did, but I certainly would never want to offend you. And for that, I apologize. He went, I, I know what you are. And it's like, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, I know you like, uh, you know, you were my good buddy before we went on. And then all of a sudden, uh, so it was like, uh, okay, you know, and I walked away and I felt good. I felt good that, you know, I hadn't been a suck and not gone up to him, but it was, uh, he gave me this look like, oh man. Yeah, he he sort of comes off like that. I mean, even in the interview on, on Off the Record, he kind of, he mentions that same kind of thing and. And then you know he he's trying to be witty. He's he's great on the microphone when it he's comes to the WWE. So so yeah. so here's 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 the thing. Like like I can say I thought he was a jerk and that he you know like my questions were legitimate, but he is a brilliant talker. He is a brilliant talker. Like the man is uh, like I, I watched him when uh, the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup the last time yeah. they won the Stanley Cup. He did uh, the parade. He did the commentary with someone and he was amazing. You know, it was like, you know, like it, it, like like I can say he was a, a bit of a whiny baby, but he's a brilliant performer. Yeah. I mean, his his skills on the mic, I think of like maybe four to like six wrestlers all time that are gifted in wrestling gifted in entertainment and gifted with the microphone because it's it's not a skill that everybody has i spoke to kurt angle about this um you know a few weeks ago and, and kurt said the exact same thing it's like it's really hard to be a master of three things and most guys will get you know two maybe some of them get one but then you have those brilliant guys the stone colds the rocks the kurt angles the cm punks who can get on the microphone and you believe Every single word they are saying. And he went through a segment when he was calling Triple H out by his name on Raw. And you're sitting there as a fan like, okay, this is like the realest that it's ever going to get as far as pro wrestling goes. And you just realize how good he is at delivering for an audience. Yes, he didn't have the most successful mixed martial arts career, but it was certainly lucrative. The man yeah, got it was, paid. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, you you – like. UFC is the highest level. Like, yeah. are, are you really, are you going to be a, uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but are you, you know, if you, uh, if you play rugby in high school, uh, are you going to say, okay, well, I'm just going to flip to the NFL. It's like, no, yeah. you can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a wrestler and I'm going to flip to UFC. It's totally different. And you're fighting against guys that have fought and done nothing else for their, their whole lives. So um, it was probably a bad call. And uh, when he got whooped, I thought it was pretty funny, but um, he is, uh, he, he's, he's great. Yeah, to me, it kind of reminded me of like a sports movie, just like the exaggeration of uh, rookie of the year, for instance. A kid breaks his arm, gets like the elastic arm. All of a sudden, he's pitching for, you know, the Chicago Cubs. Like it kind of like seemed like there was this huge disconnect between pro wrestling and MMA, except for, you know, Kemp Shamrock, Brock Lesnar. Like there are a few guys who were able to do it. And Kurt Angle even said if the UFC and mixed martial arts was as big it is now when he was coming off of the Olympic national team, he probably wouldn't have been in pro wrestling. He never right. watched it growing up. He probably would have, would have went into the UFC. And based on his skills and based on how successful some of the guys who have those skills in MMA are, you know, we could have seen a, a, a 
world champion on the UFC level, which I think is just incredible considering how amazing Kurt Angle was. Now, to sort of switch gears from CM Punk, but to stay into the wrestling world, you've referenced again the Vince McMahon interview. One of my favorite parts is when you call him out. And anyone can say, you know, I'm going to put the gears to a guy and make him kind of squirm in his seat. But the way you did it, you called him out for not addressing the amount of Canadians being Canadian in the WWE, guys like Edge, guys like Chris Benoit, guys like Chris Jericho. I have to say, when you saw Vince turning and sweating and you saw the gears going, okay, how am I going to spin this a little bit? What were you feeling inside when you asked that question? Well, I, I mean, it, I, I got to be honest. I, I don't remember that. I, okay. I you know, uh, I don't remember specifically that. But I remember the first time that that uh, Vince was on the show after the screw job. I remember saying, you know, you lied to Brett. And he said, I didn't. And then I said, well, you know, didn't you tell Brett before uh, before the match that he was that it was going to be a draw? And he said, yeah, that's correct. And I said, and and didn't Brett lose? He goes, yeah. I go, well, it doesn't that mean you lied to him? He goes, no. I go, I don't understand. Please explain to me. And then it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I guess I wasn't honest with him. And at that point, I mean, that was like uh, six months, I think, into our uh, the start of Off the Record. It was yeah, That was such a boost for my confidence to say, okay, I got the guts yeah. to challenge someone. See, here, here's the biggest challenge of doing that job. You have to debate guys on their world. Yeah. So I'm so, you know, Vince, like, so I'm now arguing with Vince about wrestling and, and wrestling is all he does. But I have to have that same argument uh, or, you know, an argument with a baseball player the next day or with a, you know, someone from another sport. And it takes it takes uh, a, a lot of belief in yourself that you go, OK, I can handle this. Like, you know, you're arguing with Dana White. You know that Dana White is is going to try to bury you in an argument. He's going to go, whoa, that was stupid. And you know, he's just waiting to do that. So um, Vince really helped me with that because I started to believe that, hey, I can do this. Now, you've had your shirt ripped off. You've had your parking ticket denied by an NBA great in Tumbo. You even had a man proposition. No, no, no. (laughs) And it was during during, um, uh, mustache, uh, Movember. That's right. So I had a mustache, which was horrifying. And so I was going in and uh, he, I, I said uh, to Kemi, will you have some fun? He goes, sure. So I said, you wait at the gate. I'm going to come in and you turn me away when I when I look at you, right? Because you go, not like that mustache. And you know, his thing was, no, yeah. no, no, not in my house. So he goes, no, 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 not with that mustache. <laughs> And I thought, oh, I love the Kambi Matumbo. Like I had the coolest job. Look, I, I got to have, I got to ask and have fun with with all these famous people. I mean, you even had a man proposition Gene Simmons to be the four thousand five hundred and first person that he slept with. That is so correct. When when we talk about all of these, you know, funny, viral, memorable instances of OTR. Is there like three that really stand out in your mind? Maybe not segments, but guests on the show that you walked out of there and you said, man, that was great for me. That was great for them. And I really think the audience is going to love what we did today. 
You know, I, I think the one that you mentioned, uh, Gene Simmons, Thea Andrews, who was sitting beside him, uh, and it was Mark Tewksbury, who won a yeah. gold medal in the backstroke uh, in, uh, two, in 1992, I think. Uh, and uh, Mark Tewksbury was this like super smart guy who who actually came out and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm gay and I'm tired of hiding it uh, when he won the Olympic gold medal. Um, so, uh, like we, we got to be buddies. I, I loved him. Super smart guy. And he kind of like, he would always say to me, I can't believe you're putting me on a sports show. I, I don't know anything about anything. I said, yeah, but you know what? You got charm and you're fun. You make good TV. So Gene Simmons, when I introduced him, I said, uh, he was promoting a book and I said, Hey, Gene, in your book, you say that you've had sex with 400, 4,063 women. Um, but you know what? Well, Chamberlain wrote a book and he had sex with 20,000 women. So sorry, Gene, you're like not a big deal. So that we kind of left that. And then Gene is like such a pig. Oh, my God. He was like he was he was touching Thea. Right. A beautiful woman, but that should have nothing to do with it. You're not allowed to touch people or you shouldn't be allowed to touch people. And she goes, Gene. I don't want to be number, I don't want to be number 4,107. And Mark Tewksbury goes, I want to be number (laughs) 4,107. And that story is so good because uh, Tewksbury told me uh, years later, he said, well, when I was a kid, I had a picture of Gene Simmons up on my wall. And he was kind of the guy that made me realize that I like men. And then Gene Simmons was on Howard Stern. And someone told me that Gene Simmons was on Howard Stern. And uh, Stern asked him a question about bizarre things that have happened. He goes, I was on a Canadian sports show. And this gay swimmer tried to molest me. I mean, he didn't use the word molest, but I, yeah. I don't know who watches your show. And it was like, that 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 never happened. But, you know, there there's when you tell a story. Um, eventually, if you tell it enough times, it ceases to be uh, very similar to the actual story. Now, I've been doing this podcast for you know a little over two years now, and I've done my best to have guests that mean something to me. Obviously, you being on the show today is because I grew up watching OTR, and I've always kept things very positive. You know, as you mentioned off the top of the show, you got to sort of know your guest and you know, play to their ego at times to make sure that it is a comfortable show. On OTR, that hasn't always been the case like you've alluded to. Your willingness to ask those tough questions not only created incredible content that I would argue would probably go viral today if OTR was still on, but you also get to see some of the most powerful people, actors, athletes, entertainers, squirm in their seat. What was the best reaction to a question that you propose. Obviously, we talked about CM Punk. We've talked about Vince McMahon. Was there a reaction that you sort of got in the moment that you were like, okay, this is going to be fun? Uh, you know, it's just, it's, you know, we did uh, um, 18 seasons, 210 shows a season. Um, that's like 3,900 shows. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to remember moments. But as I talk about it, things things come to mind that I go, oh, that was pretty cool. And that was pretty cool. But, you know, when you do a show every day, the most important show of your life is the one that's coming up that day. Right. And every other show you've ever done doesn't mean anything because you can't change it. Right. right. So it'd be like, okay, show's done. And it's like gone. Um, I mean, not exactly. Obviously, you know, you, you have some memories of it, but you know, you, you, you can't live on what you've done because you're only as good as the show you're about to do. 
Right. Uh, I th- I remember Stone Cold Steve Austin ripping the shirt off you. Yeah. I remember obviously the CM Punk interview, but Chael Sonnen, who again I think is another smart man, just like CM Punk, wizard on the microphone, wizard on the mic. Chael Sonnen is is Chael Sonnen and CM Punk, the two guys that actually um, at different times hated me. And I would right. say after four thousand shows, there would be maybe ten people that said, you know, I didn't like Michael. Like I'm a I'm a good guy, right? And I treat right. people with respect. And sometimes the way to treat a person with respect is to is to ask them tough questions because that shows that you respect them, that you think sure. that they can answer those questions. Uh, but the two guys that uh, that really at the time especially hated me were Chael Sonnen and CM Punk. And those are two of the best talkers imaginable. Chael yeah. Sonnen is one of the greatest uh, fighters ever with the microphone. I mean, funny and quick and merciless, right? Like, I, you know, like, you would you could always say about me, okay, well, you know, Landsberg wouldn't like wouldn't want to embarrass anyone. You know, I'm a good guy. I wouldn't want to hurt anyone. Yeah. He wants to hurt you. Like, so uh I was uh I was wrestling with uh with a bear in a cage. Uh and uh I I I didn't think it was my best show, this the Chael Sonnen show. Uh I thought that uh I had no idea what was gonna happen. The background of that is Chael Sonnen. Uh, I go, uh, I'm in spin class with my daughter and Vlad, the spin instructor, a big UFC fan, and he's got a very thick accent um, from Eastern Europe. And he says to me, I, w- I won't try to do the accent, but he says, uh, you, ha- you have to put on Chael Sonnen. So I go, okay, why? He goes, best talker. You're going to love him. He goes, I go, okay, well, next day I went to work and I said, we should try to book Chael Sonnen. So that afternoon, um, uh, Aaron Bronstetter, who was the guest booker, says, yeah, well, you know, uh, I got Sonnen. He's going to be on next week or whatever. So I go to Vlad between now and then. And he's, I say, what should I ask him? He goes, you got to get, try to get him mad because he, because, you know, Chill likes that. Like he, he won't be mad, but he'll act really mad. Yeah. I said, okay. I mean, that's typically what wrestlers do, right? You know, it's like, it's kind of fake anger, but uh, I said, okay. He said, ask him about Anderson Silva, like make like he's afraid of Anderson Silva. So I said, okay. So we start the show uh, and I say something like, uh, you know, I, I noticed that when you were in the octagon, you were challenging Anderson Silva, who was in the audience. But now three weeks later, you've taken the challenge off the table. Like, are you afraid of him or what? He goes, what? And I said, and, and I actually could tell that this was not a work. This was yeah. this was real. So I I said, well, you know, I just want to know, like Anderson Silva's, you know, he and GSP are probably the greatest of all times. Like, are you, are you, you know, like, do you want to get in with him? He goes, who do you think you're talking to? And And at that point, I'm going, I don't think this is good, but maybe he's just that convincing. Right. So this goes on and uh, it went from that to worse, to worse, to finally, he said, uh, you know what, I'm out of here. And he takes off his mic and gets up and, and leaves. And it was, it was, we were all stunned because I had told everybody in advance, you know, he's going to play along and it's going to be great. And the first thing that the producer said to me was, no, I don't think he was playing along. He was, <laughs> he was pissed. So I, I reached out to him, I don't know, a week later. And I said, look, you know, I, I apologize if, if, uh, if I was not a good host, 
you know, I want to say that, like, like you don't you don't want to say things that you don't believe. You don't want to say, oh, right. I'm so sorry, I was such a jerk. But I, you know, I said, look, it wasn't my best moment for sure, and it wasn't my best show for sure. And I'm a big fan of yours, and I just wanted to engage you and have some fun. So it was not intentional in any way. And his response was, fine. And I thought. <laughs> That's a dick move. You like, yeah. like when someone apologizes, you you gotta you gotta at the very least say okay, whatever. But he reached out back to me and uh, he asked me a question, and we got to be buddies. That I mean, his press conferences, his post fight interviews is what set the tone for guys like Conor McGregor, yep. who isn't as witty. Definitely doesn't. I mean, obviously the accent plays a part in that, but everybody nowadays wants to emulate Conor, who wants. To you know, who was emulating Chael? Chael was better than Tito, better than you know the Iceman. Oh, no one was doing what Chael was doing, and no one, I think, has reached the level that Chael reached. Chael was then. the best, the best talker, and you know, uh, it's uh, it's just funny that the the two battles that I had were with two of the best talkers on the planet. Yeah. But I never would have done that if if they weren't, right? Like as I said, you know, you don't want to look like a bully and you can't look like a bully with Chael Sonnen. People aren't going to go, yeah. oh, Michael's pushing Chael Sonnen too hard. You know, Chael Sonnen can handle himself and is a better talker than I am. So it was like, okay, well, like, why shouldn't I try my hardest? But he, uh, uh, he's he's an unusual guy. I won't say anything else. We had another following falling out, uh, and it was uh, it was over a charity thing. And uh, you know I, he's not here to defend himself. Even sure. though, hold on, the next day after this went down, this is just after the pandemic started. We did a show called Isolation Nation, and he was okay. going to be a guest. And uh, he didn't like the fact that he uh, he clicked on at four forty five, and the show was on at five o'clock. And he goes, well, why are we not doing the show now? I said, well, you know, the show starts at five o'clock. I sent it to uh, you were actually supposed to, you know, like join us like 15 minutes ago, Chiel, but it doesn't matter. You know, like go do what you want, but come back two minutes before. Yeah. He goes, so we're, we're not you're not ready. I go, well, it's not that I'm not ready. The international clock is not ready. It's yeah. 448 now. So he gets up and leaves and we all think he's coming back. Right. Nope. It's like he did it to me again. <laughs> and then the next day he does his podcast. He has he has a studio in his house. He's amazing at it. Like he's he, that's that's his wheelhouse. Yeah. And he just ripped him to me. Landsberg, he tells me to come on the show and he tells me to come on too early. And then he's not respectful of my time. And then he starts giving me attitude. And then I just decided, you know what? Screw off Landsberg. And I left. And this went on. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not telling you most of what he said. But it was it was such a dick move. I'm going to use that term for the third time last time. But it was such a because I wasn't there to defend myself. So I right. wouldn't I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't rip into him. Uh, I guess maybe I did. But um, I'm a big fan of his. That's the sad thing. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a shtick, though, too. Right. So, I mean, part of it's probably coming from a place of frustration, but also just like a place of like, I can put something together and, you know, on my own podcast and sort of rant, but everyone knows that Chael is like that. Chael, that's how he gets his list, right. and he's he, afraid at it. Oh, he's the best. Yeah. But I, I think he also looks for that opportunity. So he goes, sure. man, I got gold for tomorrow. Exactly. I'm just going to carve up, you know, Landsberg, and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, I thought it was kind of funny. 
but also it's really annoying because sure. we're, we're all sitting around waiting for him. And it's like, dude, it's a mental health show. We're here to talk about how you're coping with the pandemic and what it's done to your life. And, you know, do you find yourself challenged because of it? So, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like I was getting paid to be there and I was taking advantage of him. Now, you just brought up something that I definitely want to get into mental health. Now you've spoken very openly and honestly about mental health awareness dating back to before it was socially acceptable thing to speak about. What has that journey been like for you and where would you like to see the conversation of mental health advance in the future? Well, what it did to my life was, uh, well, I had uh, anxiety when I was a kid and that shaped a lot of what I did as a kid. Uh, but it wasn't until the second year of off the record, I think, that I experienced depression. And it was like by far the worst thing that I've ever experienced. I had no idea that that's what depression was. I was like everybody else. I thought it's like, yeah. oh, you know, I'm, I'm I, like, I don't feel like getting out of bed and I don't want to go to work. You know, poor me. That's what I thought it was. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I was diagnosed with it, I thought, I should go around and apologize to every person I ever judged because it was, it, it was impossible. It was impossible to experience joy. Like it didn't matter if you gave me a check for $10 million, I would not have felt any joy whatsoever. I would have known it's good. There's intellectual, um, understanding that something's really good for you, but you couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel it. Uh, it kills your self-esteem. It makes you feel like you're the only one. It makes you feel hopeless. It makes you feel purposeless. That's what we need. I'm going to tie this into what you asked me. You know, what would I like to see? I'd like to see people talking openly about it like people have started to do. Because you got to believe that when you're talking to a group of people, for instance, when I, when I give talks, there's 100 people in the room. You got to know that there's 25 people in that room who uh, who are ashamed of the fact that either they've been diagnosed with an illness or they think they have it, but they've been too ashamed and too embarrassed to actually share it with anyone and go for help. That's what exists. More than half of Canadians statistically will not go for help no matter how much pain they're in. And that can best be alleviated by people just talking about it openly. So I talked about it in 2009 for the first time on Off the Record. I was interviewing uh, former Montreal Canadian Stefan Riche, and I had read that he had battled depression in the 1990s. And I thought, okay, well, that'll make for an interesting question. I'd never spoken about my depression on the air, not because I was ashamed. Everybody in my life knew. I just thought, who's going to care? People go, oh, Landsberg, he just wants us to like him. He knows a lot of us think he's a jerk. It's like, no, that, like I, I didn't talk about it because I thought it wouldn't do any good. And then Stefan Riche, as a guest, I asked him to come out of the green room and I said, hey, Stefan, you don't know me. You don't owe me anything. But if you'll talk about it, I'd love to uh, ask you how you're doing with depression. And he said, you know, it's I don't like to talk about it. It's very painful. And I said, OK, I'm glad I asked you. But, you know, if you would talk about it, I would talk about it. And he said, what do you mean? What would you talk about? So I told him my story and he said, let's do it. So my life is going in this direction at that point, whatever that means. And then he and I talk about it. And so my life's changed a little bit. But I, I just thought when the show was over, hey, that was good. That was a good segment. He talked a bit about it. I talked about my own depression. Uh, it was good TV, which, you know, was my job, right? Well, at 6.32, after the show's gone to air, I start getting letters from people saying how it changed their lives to watch two men talking about their depression without shame and embarrassment and without seeming weak. And now my life is going in a totally different direction. It was like, 
oh my God, how did this happen? Like, how could I have changed the way someone saw themselves? Like one guy writes, hey, Michael, uh, my dad, this is what he said. My dad lived his whole life and we never saw him smile. He came home from work every day and drank. And we all knew that he was sick. And we all said, you know, dad, you should go for help. And he said, men don't go for help. Men suck it up. And he said, but you know what? My dad died five years ago and here I am living my dad's life. But then I watch the two of you talking about it. And I go, hey, these guys don't seem weak. These guys don't seem like losers. I'm telling you something I've never told another human being. Like, like I'm reading this and I'm saying like, that's crazy. I had no idea that that was in any way the reaction that it was going to get. And it was like on that day that I realized that, you know, I got something that I've hated all my life, which would be, you know, my brain and the illness that sometimes infects it, but I can actually do something with it. And that's amazing. It's like, you know, my poison is somebody else's medicine. Because just yeah. talking to someone uh, and making them understand that you're not ashamed will lessen their shame. And that's such a that's such a huge thing. I mean, there's so many amazing things that you mentioned there and so many facts that you've, that, that you've just unleashed as well. For the longest time, you weren't a man if you admitted that something was wrong. And it was whether you were feeling sad, whether like you didn't want to get out of bed, whatever it is, if you talked about it, you were considered weak. And I'm going to tie this into something that's pretty important to you in just a second. But I think over the years, I mean, we saw DeMar DeRozan come out. He wrote an article for the Players' Tribune speaking about it. Kevin Love spoke about it. Um, I think Larry Hughes, former Cleveland Cavalier, spoke about it. We're starting to get now athletes, and we'll call, I'll call them influencers. And yeah. I feel that those who have the spotlight or have the opportunity who are speaking about it, much like you did with Off the Record and having that conversation, it's starting to really show people that it's okay to not be okay. And that's like, the, that's got to be like the biggest thing. Like I'm a father of three. And to say that I haven't experienced moments of depression would be a lie. I mean, sometimes you have tough days. Sometimes you have really good days, and sometimes those days can be compounded with work, family life, uh, you know, paying bills, like whatever it is. We all have our own things that we deal with, but it's important, as you've talked about, to to be able to speak about it, to understand what you're feeling, and know that you're not alone in this, and that it's okay. Now, you founded in 2016, sick, not weak. Can you talk a little bit about? What I can talk a lot about it. Yeah. Whoa. What, okay. What inspired you, you to start it? Um, and what is your organization doing? Yeah. Let me, let me go back to what you said. Um, we all have bad days, as you said, and we all have, you know, like times in our lives that we go, eh, it's not the best time in my life. You know, maybe you have three kids and maybe one of your kids, uh, you know, had a tough first month of their life. And you would say, well, you know what, that was like probably the most miserable I've ever been, but right. that's not an illness. That's life. And yeah. the way I try to explain it to people is this, my dad died in January. That makes me sad, but it doesn't make me depressed. Sad is an inevitability in all of our lives, but depression is a sickness that we don't all get. And people um, don't often have the expertise to determine the difference between the two. You know, when do I, you know, well, like, like if they have the same sort of symptoms, when do I know I got to go to the doctor? And those are important questions. But I started, uh, well, 
I, I shouldn't say I, we started Sick Not Weak um, because since uh, 2009 with Stefan Riche, gradually I had started talking more and more about it. I started giving talks about it and I started getting asked to give talks about it. And uh, then uh, TSN was bought by uh, Bell. So Bell started Bell Let's Talk Day. Uh, and uh, I produced a documentary for CTV called Darkness and Hope, Depression, Sports and Me. So I was doing more and more things. And I just, I just wanted to kind of have a home for this stuff. I wanted to be able to um, get people a resource to turn to. Now, I'm a very pragmatic guy. And uh, contrary to what people thought on Off the Record, you know, I, I think a, a, a humble guy. And I know that, you know, like Sick Not Week is this big compared to um, CMHA or CAMH or any of those. We're this yeah. big. But when you're this big, you can still save a life. Sure. Uh, and that's kind of at the heart of what we do. We got our our uh, our license uh, by the CRA. Uh, you have to apply to be a charity. You can't you can't just say we're going to be a charity. Right. You got to jump through hoops to do it. Uh, and you got to you got to tell them what's your mandate. You know, and our mandate is to show the world that mental illnesses like depression are sicknesses, not weaknesses. Uh, and that's that's what I do every day. So you know, the name of the charity, Sick Not Weak Charitable Foundation, is kind of uh, not just the name of the charity. It's kind of a it's a statement. I'm sick, not weak. It's an argument. I'm sick not weak. You can use it in a many different contexts and it works in each one of those, but it still comes down to this. And you were, I thought you spoke about it really well about how um, the perception of weakness is right. If you could take the stigma around mental illness and cut it in half, right in the middle is weakness. The perception is that it's somehow different than a physical illness, that somehow it's self-inflicted, that people who are really tough they don't get depression or well, they have it, but they just move on with their lives and they stand up to it. Whereas guys like me, you know, had to go to a doctor, had to go on medication, you know, had to, um, you know, like, I'll tell you what this means in a second, but this, the, the feeling that a mental illness like depression or anxiety or bipolar or OCD is somehow self-inflicted is right at the heart of the stigma. And no one wants to be seen as weak. No one wants to be seen as weak. So the key is not to convince someone that you should be seen as weak. The key is to convince them that mental illness is not a weakness. And the best way to do that is to say it with strength. I tell people, you're going to your boss, don't go in and say, oh, you know, I don't know why I get like this. And, you know, I, I think I need some help, but I shouldn't be like this. I love my job and I should never have come in here. No, screw that. It's like, hey, I'm really sick right now. And I have not had a genuine smile on my face, genuine for the last two years. Right now, I'm just fighting to get through the day. And none of this is my life circumstance. I like my job, I like my family, I like all of that. I'm sick and I need your help. That's strength. And when you say it like that, there's a better chance that the person you say it to will see you as being strong and not weak. I'm I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. I, when we talk about doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, we have to think of things in the same fluidity of needing mental health days. It's the, it's all the exact same things. However, when you say, you know, I mean, need a mental health day or I'm not having a great day because you know, suffering from OCD, the OCD is really bad that day or your depression is at its lowest that it's been in quite some time. We have to be able to have these conversations and without judgment. And I think, again, the weakness and judgment, they, they sort of cohabitate 
when these conversations take place with some people. And it's why a lot of people are unwilling to speak about things. I'll use an example. It's probably not the best one, but it's the most common one in sports right now. And that is Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons, a point guard for the Brooklyn Nets, formerly of the Philadelphia 76ers, talked about uh, having mental health challenges. Did Was not feeling good after his playoff run. Didn't feel like he was being respected uh, by the organization. And it ultimately led him to being depressed, not wanting to play basketball anymore, not wanting to be around his teammates, and he wanted to leave the organization. Now, when he talks about mental health, a lot of people, because of the culture that we're in right now and the the politically correctness, are like, okay, yes, you know, we believe that Ben has these, but, and it's all of a sudden no longer about his mental health, but it's like, could he be making this up? Could he be using this as an excuse? And again, this is where the judgment comes into play. People are using their own personal biases that still personally exist in this world and are judging based on factors that they believe to be true, the way that they have seen things or grown up with things. And they're placing that judgment and those opinions on somebody else who you truly have no idea what they're going through, how they're going through it, and how bad it really can be. And unfortunately, what it has led to is this poor young man, and he is young, I feel he's probably 23, 24, in the infancy of his life, being judged on a global scale for something that very few people probably truly understand that's going on about him. What well, you, I, I, I obviously know, you know about this, Ben Simmons. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Um, he's... Uh... He's the perfect example of a guy who could be seen by some as as faking because, sure. uh, you know, he has not lived up to expectations, even though he's a premier defensive player. He's a terrible shooter. Right. You know, like yeah. he went two years without making a three, um, yeah. which is not exactly what you want from your point guard. So people are pissed off at him right away. So if he tries to explain some of the problems he's had and says, you know, I have mental health problems, people don't want to hear that. You know, they don't want to like him because he let them down. That's how that's how sports fans are, right? Yep. You know, they hate a player. But they don't really hate the guy. They hate the player, but you can't distinguish between the guy and the player, right? Um Kerfoot, uh, Alex Kerfoot for the yep. Maple Leafs. Um he was traded for Nazem Kadri, uh, or the Leafs got him in the Nazem Kadri deal. Uh, he's kind of a, a flawed player who, uh, who's who got good speed, but doesn't seem to have any hockey sense, and he makes bad mistakes. People hate Alex Kerfoot. Yeah. But but like, what kind of world do we live in if, if you hate a guy because he's doing his best, but he's just not that good? That's what professional sports is built on. I'm not saying I've been any different, you know, right. like, hey, over the years, there's Maple Leafs and Blue Jays and and Argos that I hated, right? You know, and and it would be like, I can't believe I said that. Like, I hate that guy. No, I don't yeah. hate that guy. So Ben Simmons is that guy in that position where people don't want to hear what his struggles are. But when you were explaining uh, about Ben Simmons, you 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 were saying how you know he's a great player, he's a young player. I mean, he's a six ten point guard. What the hell? He's yeah. a six ten point guard. It's insane. But you were talking about how uh, you know he's a good player, but obviously you know um, fans were let down, uh, and people know that he's mentally struggling. But then you use the word "but." Everything after you say the word "but" is the stigma. 
So it's like um, if someone was talking about me, hey, if they said, hey, Michael, like, I, I know that, you know, you have depression and I know that, you know, you've talked a lot about it and you're on medication. And now you, you, you know, when you have you have bad days that are are chemically imbalanced in your head. I understand. I, I know it's a really crappy thing and it affects your life. But come on, it's not like you got cancer, but. Yeah come on, like, you know, like when you're having a bad day, go out and do something fun, you know, like life isn't that bad. So as soon as you say, but you're changing course and you're saying, but, but you would never say that, you know, to somebody with cancer, you'd never say, oh, well, you know, I know you're going through chemotherapy and, you know, you feel terrible and your prognosis isn't very good. And I understand that, but come on, like, hey, if you only got a month to live, you may as well have fun. Like, but signifies the footnote that's coming that changes everything you've just said. Right. Yeah. Listen, you're 100% correct. I love it. Um, you got the tattoo. It has a significance for you. Let's, let's talk about it. What is, what does the tattoo say one more time? And what does it mean to you? Uh, 11, 2408 YUL would be November the 24th, 2008. YUL is the Montreal airport code. MH521 is Marriott Hotel, room 521. 0400 is 4 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I use that um, so I can say to people, I understand you. Like I was, I was, I had been really sick for about a year and a half at that point. And we were in Montreal for the Grey Cup shooting off the record. And I was just, I was just in, in so much pain. And that's a very difficult thing to explain, right? Like if you say, oh my God, I, you know, I had knee surgery and I was so much pain when I came out of the surgery, people understand, but what is the pain that I'm talking about? Uh, And it is difficult to explain that. But I was sitting in my room on the edge of my bed at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I thought, wow, I know why people take their own lives. Because uh, I I thought to myself, okay, well, I have been through this before and I've gotten better. So I had some hope. But if I had tried, let's say, over the course of the year and a half that I was really struggling, if I had tried all kinds of different therapies and treatments and I had failed on all of them, I would have said, oh, my God, like, I, I can't live like this forever you know, it's, it, it's too hard to go through my day. You know, I wake up in the morning and I think to myself, why would I get out of bed? And the only reason is to get back in bed. It's like, okay, right. how long till I can get back in bed? So I have that on my arm because it's a reflection of, uh, for me, what was the lowest moment. But I tell people that's, that's your hope, right? Like if you're where I was on 112408 and you now know where I am, which is pretty good. You know, like, Hey, medication and other things have, have helped me to the point where I can enjoy my life. It's not great. Like mental health wise, but that's a lesson to people that you can go from here to where I am now. That's someone's hope. And that's what somebody needs who's sitting in their hotel room on the edge of the bed at 4am in the morning thinking I'm never going to get better. I went on your website, sick, not weak. Absolutely loved it. Uh, the first thing that caught me by surprise was the first thing your site asks you is how how are you today? It's like how are you feeling? It gives you a scale of like one to ten. I put a seven because you know it's not the best, but I'm not feeling the worst. Like I feel pretty pretty yeah. solid, and it was it was an interesting way to just start the journey through your website because obviously you have testimonials, you have what's going on, you have the sponsors that are that are part of the sick not weak movement. 
people can get involved. You got some great merch, which I want to talk to you about uh, maybe after the show. Um, but the the website as a whole is fantastic. Why did you why did you put that as the opening from someone visiting your site? And do other people give you you know feedback on their entry to your website? So I, I would say that um, the the number, it, the scale, we call it the Sichter scale, like not the Richter scale, which measures yeah. earthquakes, but the Sichter scale. Uh, and the Sichter scale is a measure of your mental well-being. And the way I describe it is, uh, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, a zero is where I was, 112408. Uh, and a 10 is not euphoria because euphoria is not normal mental health. Right. A 10 is the ability to experience whatever comes your way. If something great happens, you can feel great. If something bad happens, you can feel bad. That's what you're supposed to feel. No, no one should be, uh, you know, in a permanent state of euphoria. That doesn't make sense. And that's not what anyone's looking for. So my next door neighbor, Tom, uh, we moved into the house that we're in about 10 months ago. And uh, he said to me, I don't know, early on, and he said, hey, you know, I know you talk a lot about mental health and, uh, you know, I'm one of those guys that you're talking to. And he told me a bit about himself and how he had really plummeted. Uh, and what brought him back um, was uh, magnetic stimulation. So there's a treatment that people with depression can have where there's a magnet that they put up to your head and it sits in this specific spot that they have chosen for like 45 minutes. And you don't feel anything other than, you know, the magnets doing this, kind of like when you go for an MRI, right? Right. Uh, he said, I, I, uh, it saved my life. So wow. today I was shooting something for TikTok, right? And he was out front and I was going, uh, you know, I'm feeling like a seven. And, and my, my uh, the guy who works for us, Jake, I said to him, how are you feeling? Because he's had mental health challenges. He goes, yeah, I'm a seven, too. And I go, hey, Tom, what are you? He goes, seven. So how else if I said to him, how are you? How yeah. would he have given me anything specific? He might have said, no, I'm, I'm OK, I'm pretty good. And, and the key is not what's your number on a given day. But what were you yesterday or last week or last month? Where have you come from? What direction are you going in? And that, to me, is what you need to hear from people. And it's much easier to qualify, quantify it than it is to use words where you say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm OK. And then how were you uh, a month ago? Oh, it was, uh, I wasn't great. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Now, you talked about your TikTok account. I will say I happened to, happen to stumble upon it after we said that we were going to do this, I instantly followed. It is a great, great TikTok account. From everything that you talk about, no, I, tru I truly mean this because, and, I, and I'll explain this because I've, I've watched almost all of your videos from talking uh, about Tucker Carlson to the whole tattoo saga to how you would mark up your arms and that would be your tally as to how you were doing for yeah. the month. That? You have proven yourself <laughs> I, that you have uh, appropriately done your research yes. because you, you I, I'm telling you, because uh, I, I did it, you know, many times where you go, I don't want this guy to know, but, you know, I don't, I, don't, I you know, I didn't learn enough about him. Right. So you bluff, but you're not yeah. bluffing. And uh, we just started TikTok, I guess, about five weeks ago, and it's a totally different platform. But you know, if you can't if you can't say it in uh, a short amount of time, people aren't going to watch. And that's, I think, a, a good challenge. 
uh, yeah, listen, I, like I said, I think the content is absolutely phenomenal. The honesty, the way that you're putting things out there. Again, you talked about Bell, uh, Bell Let's Talk Day. This is something that isn't just about a single day. This is about every single day, 365. So my what I'm putting out to the, my listeners, to the people who watch this, when you're having a tough day, when you're having a great day, check out Michael's website, sicknotweak.com. It is great stuff to read. The testimonials are awesome. As I mentioned, the merch, T-shirts, sweatpants. Yeah, we have to order more. Um, my daughter uh, works with me on the charity, right? She went to fashion school in New York and okay. uh, she designed the original stuff. And uh, we were just talking uh, actually yesterday. I had... Uh, um, we had somebody over who's a graphic designer and we were talking about, okay, um, so that's going to happen, I hope, over the next four weeks. We'll order it and get a shipment and uh, I, will be, uh, I will be very happy to deck you out in sick not weak gear. Hey, listen, if you ever get a hoodie, I'm a hoodie guy. I will wear it. I will rock it. I will. I believe in everything that you are doing. I love it, and if I can do anything to help it with my following, I would love to be able to do that. One last question before we go. I have to ask you. Mm-hmm. Tattoo number one, out of the way. Is there going to be a second tattoo? Well, I never thought I'd have one, and it was kind of the spur of the moment. We, uh, we have a friend. Uh, he played for the Argos, actually, Byron Parker. Uh, he was an incredible cornerback and had five touchdowns, I think, in his first 10 games on interceptions, right? Yeah. And I, I interviewed him once. Uh, he was on Off the Record, and I just liked him, right? And I invited him over to our house, and my family fell in love with him. So, like, last night, he was having dinner in our backyard. Uh, he lives in Atlanta, and he came up to visit with his family. And he, like he said to his wife, he said, you know, this is my family here referring to like the Landsbergs and uh, he is uh, he's a graphic designer and uh, I think we're going to we're going to sign him to a long-term contract to get him to take our vision and make something fun and cool and you know you uh, uh, you asked me about the tattoo he said um, two nights ago when we were together he said uh, my kids want to get a tattoo and Case said, well, you know, how about you? I'm tired of writing on your arm with marker. You know, um, I said, OK, I'm going to do it. So we went uh, on uh, on Queen Street. There was a place called Adrenaline. We walked in there and said, you know, I want to get this. And, you know, I, I it wasn't like I was giving it second thoughts. It wasn't a big deal, actually. Yeah. And uh, um, now I have a tattoo. Uh, will I get another one? I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm leaving that door open. I'm walking with a swagger now that I don't think I had before. It's <laughs> like, you know, hey, you know what? Don't mess with me. I got a tattoo. Uh, so, hey. yeah. You've gone toe to toe with CM Punk, with Vince McMahon and Chael Sonnen. Now you're tatted up. You've earned your stripes. If you see Michael Landsberg on the street, cross, cross Mention- the road. You don't want any of that smoke. Yeah, you don't. You don't want a piece of this. <laughs> Mention a name of a famous person. And I bet you I can either tell you that I've met them or that I know someone who met them. Ooh, okay. All right. I like this. Okay. I'm uh so in any field, any famous person. Yeah, it's gotta be North American, right? You know, Canada or okay. the US. Okay. So I mean, getting rid of the NHL players, that's too easy. Um, I would probably say, oh, this is so good. Stephen A. Smith. 
Stephen A. Smith was a guest on Off the Record, and I knew he was a huge Knicks fan. And at the end, I made a joke about how Isaiah Thomas was a terrible general manager. And he okay. was so mad. <laughs> Isaiah Thomas was like was his was his buddy, but Isaiah Thomas was a terrible general manager. Now this was by satellite, right? So he wasn't right. face to face with me, but he just took his microphone off and threw it. So yeah, Stephen A. Smith. Richard Jefferson. Richard Jeff, where did you come up with Richard Jefferson from? He has been an advocate for the Toronto Raptors culture and Toronto. There was a big ESPN thing that took place recently. Richard Jefferson. I like it's like we rehearsed this, but we didn't. <laughs> Richard Jefferson, we went to the All-Star game to shoot off the record. Uh, I don't remember what year. It was in Philadelphia. And yeah. um we uh Mark Cuban, who I got to know through off the record, um, had said, Yeah, I'll do the show. And I said to him, Mark. We can't get anyone else. The NBA promised us all these people and we're dying. Like it's you yeah. and no one else. So he goes, Hey, Richard, Richard, come over here for a sec. Introduced me to him. He said, uh, you want to do this guy's show right now? I'm going on. This is what Mark said. Jefferson said, sure, sure. Richard Jefferson. I should probably quit now because you know, I'm two for two. I'm looking <laughs> yeah. like I, you know, he must know everyone. Oh, listen, I, that that's amazing. I'm a big fan of Richard Jefferson, my, Mark Cuban. Um, obviously, you know, you have the Rolodex with, you know, 18 years and over 3,000 episodes. You've seen a lot. You've done a lot. I appreciate you joining me tonight. Obviously, this is a big opportunity for myself and a, a pleasure to finally be able to sit here and talk to you. Um, for anyone who wants to follow along on your social media platforms, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, I spend most of my time on Twitter at Hey Landsberg, H-E-Y-L-A-N-D-S-B-E-R-G. Um, we also have uh, a Twitter account, uh, Sick Not Weak. Uh, you know, Facebook, we're there, but kind of feel like Facebook is dying. I do a daily blog. We call it the Daily Lands blog. I do it every day out of, uh, we've been doing this for six years. So we're talking about 2,000 days. I've probably done 1,940 of these, like every day from every city that I've ever been in, uh, traveling or doing whatever. And it's just to, to show people, hey, you know what? There's somebody that understands you. And you can't make people feel less alone by telling them, don't feel alone. You're never alone. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. bullshit because, you know, we all are alone to some extent. You know, like when you're fighting something, to a certain degree, you're fighting on your own. Like you can go with a friend who's going for chemotherapy to Princess Margaret Hospital uh, and be there with them. But they're still fighting this illness on their own. Yeah. But what you can do is you can make people feel like they're understood. It's like, oh, my God. You know, you were talking about loss of self-esteem and joy and the inability to experience joy. And that's me. That's what you want from people. Listen, I appreciate you taking the time. Don't say anything more nice. Don't say anything <laughs> more nice. You got to You got to You got to leave some mystery to this. Uh, you did a great interview uh, and very natural and uh, very impressive. You should keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I just uh, always appreciate the chance to talk about, uh, you know, like, I mean, you were asking me questions that I don't think about very often uh, when you're talking about off the record. It was, you know, it's fun to talk about it. Uh, listen, I appreciate you and I appreciate you sharing your stories and, and diving into intricate, intricate details that we don't necessarily uh, get to see when we're watching live, as well as talking about your personal 
challenges and we'll, we'll, we'll call it that challenges good days bad days everything that you're doing absolutely love it uh for the listeners the big old podcast is available on apple podcast so make sure that you subscribe leave a review let me know how you liked michael you know is, is there something i should have asked him maybe a different care uh, a different famous person from north america maybe that'll be saved for interview number two down the road we will see how it goes uh but make sure that you follow michael check out the social media platforms follow the big o podcast for my guest michael landsberg i am julian ortiz thank you for watching listening everyone and have a great day Thank you.